Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for New Books in the American West. Today, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Robert Foxcurrent, an independent scholar and former professional historian for the Boeing Corporation. Robert is the co-author, along with Michelle Bouchard and Sebastian Mallet, of Songs Upon the Rivers, the buried history of the French-speaking Canadiens and Métis from the Great Lakes and the Mississippi across to the Pacific, which was published in 2016 with Baraka Books. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, likewise. Uh, most glad to have the opportunity. Before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background, and how did you become interested in history generally and the history of the French legacy in the American West in particular? A uh, long and circuitous route, uh, doubt, but uh, short version is uh, ended up working for Boeing in their Paris office uh, about 28 30 years ago, and uh, my game plan to write a significant modern integrated work on the story of Huguenots, including my uh, ancestry uh, along that line, the French Huguenots, French Calvinist Protestants in in North America, got derailed and headed off on uh, another route, that of the French Canadian and Matisse across uh, the North American continent. I figured, uh, or I realized that that was a much bigger story and I needed to go after someone else's story, not my family background. Uh, and, uh, this occurred while stationed in, uh, Paris for a couple of years by Boeing and, uh, maps that were available there at their national geographic Institute and elsewhere made it clear that there were still pockets of French-speaking people in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere in the American West, uh, more than just New England and Southern Louisiana, which uh, puzzled me thoroughly. And uh, there was a certain amount of credibility uh, issues involved. But I went after it and uh, realized that uh, in fairly short order that uh, up till a half century ago, there were a fairly large number of French-speaking Native Americans uh, in the American West. And clues along those lines came from working in the Boeing Paris office for a French-speaking Abenaki Indian, retired U.S. Air Force general, then working for Boeing, uh, and my dad's cousins who were Osage and uh, in response to the question, said, of course, all of us have uh, French-Canadian or French-Creole great-great-great-grandpas. That's uh, business-as-usual standard stuff. So then uh, traveling around the country, um, I became more and more curious and uh, saw more and more clues and thought maybe definitely there's uh, some squirrels in that tree. And I started barking. <laughs> um, 
How did you become involved in this book project in particular with Michelle and Sebastian? Well, it was uh, via a mutual friend of Michelle's and mine, uh, Dean Lauder, who was a geographer at the University of Laval. He had gotten his PhD, coincidentally, locally here at UW Seattle, University of Washington. And as a geographer, he and uh, his partner of... Uh, in the world of geography, Eric Waddell had spent most of their career mapping out all the pockets of uh, French speakers from Louisiana and across the West, putting out books like Franco-Amérique and, uh, uh, well, wait a second, I'm not going to start listing the titles because <laughs> most of these haven't been translated and they're in <laughs> French and nobody needs to hear that. But in any case, worthwhile if, if anybody reads French at least, which shouldn't be all that difficult since most of our Words in our history books actually came right out of French 700, 800 years ago. Um, but uh, so uh, that's the uh, probably more than anybody needs to know about stumbling into this huh. uh, path. Well, um, sorry, you, you, can, you can continue. I interrupted you. Oh, no, um, that's uh, I would. Um, but the next thing I would have to say is simply uh, I've got a couple of short citations that I think are very telling uh, as far as the significance of what we're talking about in our book, Songs Upon the Rivers, if you're ready for that. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. One, I would, of all the phenomenal amount of uh, worthy publication out of the coming out of the American Midwest in the last 15 or so years. And I'll make quick reference to a few of those at some point. But um, Jake Gitlin's Bourgeois Frontier, French Towns, French Traders, and American Expansion. One sentence taken out of his book uh, goes a long ways to saying uh, what we're trying to say. Though he uses the word French in the American West instead of, you know, the... Uh, most of them were Canadiens or Canadians and uh, with a backfill of uh, Creoles. But the one sentence says it all version here from Bourgeois Frontier by Jay Gitlin. The true legacy of the French in the American West is the role they played in Western expansion in negotiating the course of American empire. That we must acknowledge. So that... Uh, I think uh, gives it on the short. And then I have another uh, clarification. As far as the actual impact of where this series of books is going, I would bring you to another Midwestern historian, R. David Edmonds, in the preface to his book, The Potawatomi Keepers of the Fire, a major tribe around Lake Michigan and within Michigan State. Uh, as in two centuries ago. And he introduces the reader to the longer-term impact of the tribe's regional alliances, trade, and intermarriage going well beyond the lines and dates and coloring in our conventional historic atlases. He points out in the preface to this book, The Potawatomi, as I began my research into Potawatomi history, certain patterns slowly appeared which attracted my interest. By far the most prominent of these patterns was that of the Potawatomi ties to New France. 
During the colonial period, the Potawatomi emerged as the most faithful of all of France's red allies. Indeed, the close Potawatomi-French relationship continued well after the official French withdrawal from the Midwest, playing a major role in tribal acculturation patterns in the 19th century. Potawatomi mixed bloods are of particular interest since they led the tribe through the removal period. A product of two and sometimes three cultures, many of these mixed bloods subscribed more to the value systems of the Creole French traders than to either Potawatomi or American ideals. They served as mediators between the red and the white communities, often protecting Potawatomi interests but also amassing personal fortunes in their negotiations with the federal government. Frontier opportunists, the mixed bloods offer an interesting study in acculturation. And then uh, I would just say simply, similar roles, outcomes, and controversies would occur for virtually all the other tribes across the northern borderlands of the U.S. all the way to the Pacific. And that's what uh, the later volumes in the series deal with. So that opportunism, cultural intermediaries and such. So that's uh, that's it as far as a couple of in- introductory citations. Yeah, those two quotes really do summarize pretty well what it is that um, the three of you are trying to accomplish in this book, I feel like. Those are, those are, those are good. Um, let's jump into the book a bit by having you tell us a little about some of the the stories that you begin the book with. In particular, tell us where the French Empire and where French history traditionally come into play in narratives told about the American West. How do how do French speaking people um, play into the kind of the, the typical narratives that you hear about the West? That's kind of varied over time as far as uh, American historiography. They were marginalized pretty quickly. Uh, and they had their numbers uh, and presence reduced both quantitatively and qualitatively as far as individual character and behavior and such. Um, but so they were actually mentioned as kind of useful idiot background characters huh. uh, early on in American uh, histories of the West. And over time, they virtually disappeared from the history of the American West especially as dime novels and journalists uh, found uh, it lucrative to cater to the audience back east and reinvent the West along the lines that Americans wanted to hear it and see it and read it. Um, But uh, the net result of that is that a very well-documented presence, uh, be it uh, people's journals, other non-French speaking people's observations to the Catholic Church records, to government records, and in particular Bureau of Indian Affairs documentation, there is an enormous amount of original source material uh, referring to these people if one gets below the conventional history of the American West routine. And nowadays, uh, they've, except for probably the history of the American Midwest, they're still uh, out of the picture, uh, as we will mention a little later in this discussion, reminded most recently with that uh, movie, The Revenant, where um, basically all the French Canadian and Matisse 
in their several minutes in and out of the story were simply uh, cowards, um, kidnappers, murderers, lynchers, rapists, and such. Uh, so, um, you know, there's not another ethnic group on the planet that would be politically correct for a modern Hollywood movie to go into that sort of characterization and character assassination. But it's uh, most people I talked to that saw that movie were just totally unfazed, like, well, so what? Or why would you even notice? But in any case, it kind of came out right as we were finishing our book up, and it was uh, right between the eyeballs. Hmm. My heavens. <laughs> Historiography has a little more work to do to fill in this hole and especially you know so much has been accomplished in the last half century as far as people who've gotten the short straw along the way but these this seems to be the last major group that uh, uh, needs to be written back into our history and that's what we're trying to do especially on the American side of the line where most of the book takes place why do you think French-speaking people in the West have been written out of stories so much? How, how and why has this happened? Well, you know, the, the need to simplify, the need to, um, whether they were journalists or, you know, uh, uh, aspiring novelists or uh, dime novel writers, as we say, um, or if they're modern academics, uh, you, you give your audience what they want, and there's a kind of a reaction, uh, feed the beast uh, <laughs> tendency that uh, is, people have had a hard time uh, getting beyond. And obviously, uh, the East Coast narratives uh, tend to dominate, and people um, are uh, continually um, trying to... Uh, <laughs> Put us back in line for those. And if if I would, one other uh, quick quote I wanted to uh, ma make that answers that question you just asked directly. I think is is really superb. Yeah, by all means. Uh, another one. Uh, another one of the uh, midwestern historians to uh, publish in the last couple of years, uh, John Retta, in his book uh, From Furs to Farms. The Transformation of the Mississippi Valley, 1762 to 1825. Basically, it's a kind of a regional history of Illinois and Missouri. Very intriguing uh, little snapshot here. But in his conclusion, he points out, again, addressing the uh, real uh, challenge in modern American historiography, um, the communities established by the French in the early 18th century were, by the eve of the Seven Years' War, parts of a prosperous, multi-ethnic, multiracial society with an economy tied to international markets through the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River and via the Mississippi River and Gulf of Mexico to the Atlantic, again referring to Michigan and Illinois. I mean... Missouri and Illinois. Michigan is kind of a related story in any event. Um, by looking at the Illinois country as a whole, I have argued here for the value of an approach to American history 
that places specific geographic areas at the center of their own histories instead of treating them reflexively as peripheries of an eastern seaboard core. Doing so helps us better appreciate the social, economic, and demographic complexities that existed in various parts of North America prior to creation of the United States and challenges the conventional regional designations and this challenges uh, thereby the conventional regional designations that obscure the richness and variety of our local histories. So that that says it all as far as I think the the geographic uh, straitjacket that um, we get into as we move further west into the continent is that uh, stifling uh, east coast uh, or feedback orientation of historians. Well, then let's move beyond then the, the national narratives and stories told in Canada and particularly in the United States. And why don't you instead tell us about the facts on the ground of the French Empire in North America, particularly in the 17th and early 18th centuries, and especially tell us about the role of the Métis in sustaining that empire. Uh, yes. And, and again, um, the word empire is, is an interesting one because, of course, France did have an empire of sorts, but not at all uh, like what we think as far as what the British, the Dutch, the Spanish, and Portuguese uh, were up to in the Americas. Um, the, the Métis entered the story basically because um, France never sent over a large population of settlers. And they were particularly short on women on the front end. Hence, a Métis population uh, developed from the beginning and uh, proliferated as as the uh, Canadians and then later on the Louisiana penetrated the interior of the continent. Um, what you um, are facing here is basically that uh, French Empire uh, was one in which most of the resources, whether they're demographic or fiscal, financial, uh, were to be retained in France, where France was trying to maintain their uh, dominance in European politics. This was empire on a shoestring. And what they did is basically, once they carved out a few little enclaves in the St. Lawrence River Valley, they joined uh, a sequence of Indian alliances that grew based on uh, the local Algonquin and uh, Huron tribes in their defense against the uh, domination of the Iroquois to the south. And so you you have more of an alliance system uh, than you have a conventional empire. Uh, They never really... uh, attempted to dominate demographically other than the two uh, regions at the first at the um, lower St. Lawrence River Valley in what's now southern Quebec and uh, and then a century later uh, lower Mississippi and along the Gulf Coast and Louisiana. Gulf Coast of course including uh, 
Mississippi and Alabama as well in that case. So um, you have a definitely a different sort of empire that was based more on intermarriage with the locals. Uh, obviously, the mestizo uh, phenomenon in the Portuguese and Spanish um, colonies of the South was pretty common too, but on a much uh, higher scale of um, intermarriage and interactivity, where the tribes of New France, as it could be called, La Nouvelle France, retained uh, autonomy. They, this was a very loose alliance. Um, they never came under domination, and much <clears throat> like the U.S. and NATO nowadays, um, you, the French were nothing more than first among equals, primus inter paros, and they were subsidizing uh, the tribes. The tribes actually received tribute from France. France did not extract wealth from them directly through trade mechanisms. Um, that they they got some value back out of it. So um, so you have a different sort of empire. And then as uh, we talk about a little later in the book, um, you have the uh, peculiarity of after the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, the, the fourth one of the French and Indian Wars that ended with the Treaty of 1763. Um, you just before that, the French had signed in 1762 a treaty with their uh, junior Bourbon um, dynasty, the one in Spain, and transferred for safekeeping uh, their the residual of their empire west of the Mississippi over to the Spanish for protection. And What's often forgotten is that it was during this period that um, the uh, Louisiana became much more French due to the fact that uh, this west of the Mississippi uh, refuge or safe haven became the a primary option for refugees from the collapsing French empire in the Americas, whether it be the Acadia, Quebec, the Illinois settlements, or even in the end, Saint-Domingue or Haiti in the Caribbean. Uh, Louisiana acquired something on the order of another 10,000 French-speaking refugees uh, during the 40 years that it was theoretically under the, a very light Spanish bourbon um, control. And then, of course, it was... Uh, grabbed back by France under Napoleon and then hawked off to the U.S. in 1803, as everybody knows. But uh, so, again, that's kind of a qualifier as far as, you know, the uh, a more conventional view of empires in North America. Uh, eight, you touched on this a second ago, but tell us a little bit more about how the 18th and the early 19th centuries were really a prolonged period of change in what today we would call the Great Lakes region or maybe the Old Northwest. Walk us through some of these changes and what they meant particularly for the French-speaking population there um, and, and as well as for the popular narratives about the region's French and Métis history. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. In our 
chapters three, four, and five of the book, just making a general reference without going in too deep on that. Um, three and four in particular, we focus on the middle ground or the Midwest or what the uh, Canadians had always referred to as the Pays d'Honneau or the upper country, which included Illinois, Michigan, and points in between, such as Indiana. Um, and what, what occurred following the British conquest of Canada at the end of Seven Years' War is that, uh, amongst other things, not only did the French-Canadian settlers of the Mississippi, upper Mississippi Valley remain in place, they received thousands of reinforcements from Quebec as uh, people continued to pursue opportunity where they could further inland, regardless of who the overlords of the day were in the French imperial agents of yesteryear, British imperial agents uh, starting in the 1760s. So we focus on a number of families, both Indian, Matisse, and French Canadians um, in chapter three, starting with um, the Montours as one of the Freeman Jean Libre families that uh, moved out of the Trois-Rivières, part of the lower St. Lawrence, into the Midwest via Detroit, Detroit, and ultimately ended up in Oregon and Montana, as in uh, Western branches of the family. Um, then every step of the way, this is one of the prime examples, uh, every step of the way they were intermarrying with yet another uh, Native American tribe as part of the alliance kin and trading networks that was being developed and Montour being one of the early families to uh, turn this into a transcontinental saga. Um, and then Dropping back into a uh, the Midwest, where the story stays put, you have the interesting case of uh, Marie Ruenza, uh, an Illini Indian uh, living in the village of Kaskaskia in uh, southwestern Illinois, daughter of uh, one of the uh, chieftains. And she enters history with amazing amount of visibility through the Jesuit Relation uh, that were later translated into English, uh, the massive tomes of uh, all the documentation and letters sent back from the Jesuit priests in uh, North America over time. And uh, Father Gravier tells the story of her as far as uh, being his primary agent in converting uh, the local Illini village over to Catholicism. And, uh, and part of that saga, of course, is her two husbands, a Michel Echo, uh, who much older passed away before her, and then her second husband, Michel Philippe, and the, their very extensive farming um, operation that developed there, and ultimately, um, a uh, very successful trading uh, center that her family was part of her mixed blood offspring. And um, this whole story takes place before Daniel Boone was even born. Uh, so, you know, just trying to put things in perspective there and timeline. 
And they, uh, we also, uh, again, drawing very heavily from Susan Sleeper Smith's book on uh, French men and Indian women in the uh, Midwest. We have the case of the Illini Métis Marie Madeleine Réaume Chevalier. Uh, originally Illini, but spending most of her time up in Potawatomi territory uh, in Saint Joseph, Michigan, which is just north of Notre Dame and South Bend, Indiana, right across the border. About a two-hour walk, maybe uh, 30 minutes on a bike. But um, this this is a very interesting tale. We summarize Susan Sleeper Smith's uh, story there of the kin network, religion, and trade expansion throughout the Midwest. Uh, and a phenomenal story as far as reorienting one towards uh, the reality of the American frontier before the Americans showed up, and which which gets down to one of the the primary points that uh, I usually make at the very front end of uh, any discussion on this matter is the real problem comes down to in trying to or how these people fell out of American history and our need to get them back in is simply that most of the French Canadian West ended up in territory that ultimately became part of the United States. Hence, they fell out of the Anglo-Canadian national narrative in Canada, and they weren't written back in, into the American national narrative because they're Canadians. Uh, they really didn't belong. So you get this weird uh, cop-out <laughs> that goes back and forth and uh, and we end up with these holes that are finally being filled. Again, the Midwest is uh, leading the charge in these matters, and we're playing catch-up out here in the far northwest. Um, and then quickly, some of the other ones we touch on in Chapter 3 are the uh, well-known in Michigan history, probably, but not elsewhere, uh, the Ottawa uh, Matisse. Her mother was Ottawa Indian. Uh, Madame Lafon was of Michigan, uh, who was is kind of one of the co-founders of Grand Rapids, Michigan, where her she took over the trading operation of her husband after his passing, and ultimately ended up in Michelle Mackinac as a lay teacher associated with a Catholic mission there, and met Tocqueville of all people. Unfortunately, he didn't provide much detail on that encounter. Um, then we have. Jean-Gabriel Serre, who represents uh, later arrivals following uh, uh, the British conquest there in the 1760s and uh, moving inland to the French fort at Chartres, Illinois, working with George Rogers Clark over uh, crossing from Illinois over to St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, intermarrying, um, or his daughter actually married Auguste Chouteau, and her older sister uh, marrying uh, back into the prominent Panay family in Montreal. And uh, you get a, through the family story, you see the extensive trade operations that continued there between Montreal and, uh, and St. Louis. And ultimately, the story goes on to two of the Sarai grandsons becoming prominent traders and public officials in Missouri. 
And the last thing is just very briefly in, uh, we point out and go into a couple of the individuals involved with the early Michigan territorial history, uh, when Michigan broke away from Ohio territory, 1805, on a standalone. And uh, we have the case of French major uh, government and church leaders in early territorial Michigan, Pierre Audrin from France and Father Gabriel Richard from France, along with uh, the bilingual John Griffin from Virginia, in showing how Michigan territory remained uh, bilingual uh, up through statehood pretty much in 1837. So that... uh, and then we, we do a similar sort of thing, moving, um, focusing more directly on Michigan in Chapter 4 and the Campo clan and moving from Montreal into Detroit, Saginaw, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then ultimately out to Oregon. Uh, chapter 4, we talk about Father Richard and the uh, elections of 1823 and 25. He had become the, uh, I think he still is the only uh, priest ever elected to the U.S. Congress, uh, and then how the Erie Canal bringing in a flood of uh, Anglo-Americans, his attempt at re-election failed by a handful of votes due to uh, some gross uh, intimidation and violence directed against the Canadians in Detroit and uh, some legal skullduggery. Uh, associated with dismissing Métis votes up in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, Another interesting tale of the American frontier that uh, kind of falls outside the norm. I have um, one more question about Michigan before we move a bit further west, because I did, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, I didn't know anything about Alexis de Tocqueville's visit to Michigan in 1831. Um, what did he could tell us what he observed there about the Great Lakes region and kind of more broadly what American governance and later what statehood meant for the local native and Métis populations in the region? Excellent. I'm glad you asked that because I, <laughs> was, I was just debating whether to launch into that or not. So nice timing. Um, <laughs> Good synergy. The, um, yeah, the, the Tocqueville one is interesting because um, having found clues as to his being up there. And then in uh, my uh, standard text that I, you know, that everybody practically has read of, you know, democracy in America, there's no trace of him uh, up in that area. Right. You know, he's all over the, up and down the Mississippi Valley in the Midwest, New England, the East Coast. Um, But um, apparently what happened was when he went up there with his, uh, traveling buddy, fellow lawyer, doing their little study of the American penitentiary system, looking for excuses to actually do much more than that. Uh, He and Gustave Beaumont um, decided they needed to see real Indians on the frontier. And they documented this very thoroughly. And we cite from the original sources uh, in French, and like elsewhere in the book, as you notice, uh, we do translate immediately. We have limit the citations if the original source was in French, and then we give an English language uh, translation. Um, but um, apparently, they reached. There was a modus uh, in reading uh, the 
biography of Alexis de Tocqueville by André Jardin, uh, I get a strong sense that there was a understanding that Gustave was, um, de Beaumont was going to write the Indian part of the story, the frontier Native American story. And de Tocqueville hived his write, writings for publication so that that would not be published with it. And Beaumont later actually published his uh, Michigan Territory Travels and observations of the Matisse community and Native Americans that he encountered there after the Tocqueville had passed away. Uh, so a posthumous publication that has, all, has since been separated from Democracy in America. And uh, Beaumont actually did have a separate uh, publication on the Native Americans, but he didn't fold to Tocqueville's material into that. He published separately. And I don't know if you want it or not, but his observations of the, of the Matisse and the Native Americans are just totally fascinating. Um, and uh, I hesitate to get into reading those. Um, too much reading. Uh, can you can you summarize them a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit about what he did think, maybe without going into too much detail? Well, let me. He had a very kind of sympathetic view. I mean, he was totally surprised the first time he met a French-speaking Native American, and he describes his surprise at their very uh, telling terms. You know, he could. It was just dumbfounded, and then it, it went from there. But he tries to kind of psychoanalyze the Matisse in particular, as far as being of two minds and trying to reconcile their bicultural nature and situation on the frontier is living, cohabitating with and serving as a very active intermediary between the retreating Native Americans and the expanding Anglo-American community. And there's, there's quite a few pages in there drawing directly uh, from the Tocqueville's uh, observations, but they're, they're uh, prime examples of how perceptive that man was and how he kind of transcends the centuries of uh, his ability to kind of capture and distill and interpret uh, the things that would have, you know, been missed by folks living in the here and now. So, so how did American governance then change the situation on the ground for the Métis and the native populations in the Great Lakes region? Well, and it's interesting. And here, too, um, there's, there's two, two basic stories as far as the Native Americans. Uh, and, you know, the whole Jackson um, relocate the Indians west of the Mississippi uh, theme that we're all familiar with, that, that uh, we, we associate more with, you know, south of the Ohio River, but it took place north of the Ohio River, too. But what happened as far as the American Midwest is you have to kind of draw a line just above the southern border of Michigan and uh, just only around the uh, kind of a, including the south end of Lake Michigan uh, at the most. But all across Ohio, then Indiana and Illinois, under Jackson, there was a very aggressive implementation and under his uh, main man in the district, uh, Governor Cass, who later joined 
the administration back in D.C., serving all the way through Buchanan, I think right up on the eve of the Civil War. But uh, Governor Cass, a major uh, factor in the history of uh, the American Midwest. But uh, what happened is north of that line, basically in all of Michigan and what became the independent territory and state of Wisconsin, the Native Americans were not removed. South of that line, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, they were almost completely removed. Very hard to uh, avoid the militia, uh, bounty hunter, and army units. Uh, they just, very few people escaped that sweep. And so you have a situation where the uh, historian uh, Badri Albard later identified as far as his uh, research during the 1870s that he figured that half of all the Matisse in North America were actually located in Michigan. Uh, the, the, um, the, most of those people now would refer to themselves as Chippewa because, of course, the rule in the United States has always been uh, for the mixed blood community on the frontier was you're either going to get white or get Indian or stay Indian. But it's an either or choice. It's binary. There's none of both. The both of the above option wasn't even legal in, as far as the census taking uh, until the 2000 census. We've had two of them now. It's finally allowed, but, but most people can't think in those multi-ethnic terms yet as far as two or more of the above instead of one or the other. But So you that is, a, without going into, into the weeds too much, that's an important consideration. So and it's somewhat like in uh, the Pacific Northwest, Washington ended up the Indian Territory. Uh, Washington Territory was a, basically the Pacific Northwest Indian Territory. So Oregon could take the express route to statehood, which they achieved in 1859. We in Washington, let alone Idaho, Montana, didn't reach statehood until 30 years later, 1889. You kind of had a similar uh, dichotomy in, in the Midwest, where Michigan and Wisconsin remained uh, above the southern fringes, very much Indian territory, with a very heavy admixture of Matisse, mixed blood, multilingual, and often Catholic tribal members. So in 1867, as described in the book, um, Colonel Philippe de Trobriand of the U.S. Army observed from his post on the Upper Missouri that most of the traders in the region where he was stationed were of French extraction and that the French language was commonly spoken on the Northern Plains. Let's move further west. And why don't you tell us about the French and Métis legacy in the far west and particularly the importance of French speaking people well into the 19th century west of the Mississippi River? Okay, and that, um, so that's, that would include uh, a little more on uh, Philippe de Trobriand's uh, commentary. Sure, yeah, if, if you want to. Okay. Yeah, by all means. Um, I was just, it's a good kickoff point as far as perspective. Um, and that's part of chapter five, following the two on the uh, old Northwest, Michigan, Illinois world. And um, Colonel Philippe de Trobriand is interesting. He was the highest ranking uh, uh, general of French origins during the American Civil War, serving in the Army of Potomac. And uh, like Custer and others that 
were generals during the war, continuing out west after the war, they were colonels. <laughs> the, the, um, everybody had to go down a rank or two, pretty much, hmm. um, to, to stay in the game. So uh, this Colonel de Trobriand um, ended up posted there in the upper Missouri, and he, after writing his and publishing back in France his history of the American Civil War from uh, his direct experiences, um, he was out west and starting to put together in his mind from this deployment uh, a book which ultimately came out in, as V Militaire dans la Dakota, or Military Life in the Dakota. And um, citing just a few sentences from this book, uh, in our book, I just um, provide this. There are, he observed when he got to the uh, Fort Berthold there in the Dakotas, there are many French Canadians here. The traders at Berthold are French with the exception of one. The half-breeds are all sons of Canadian fathers. My native language will certainly be a great help to me here. A little journal citation in the present tense. Then, um, and then he continues, it is notable that the French language is a good deal more common among them, the Native Americans, in these parts than English, which is a result of a great infusion of Canadian blood in the tribes. And, uh, and so my basic bottom line comment on this interesting observation from 1867 in the upper Missouri is this is 64 years after the Louisiana Purchase and 61 years after Lewis and Clark had uh, shot down the river uh, in 1806 there after uh, coming back from the Pacific coast. So this, this leads into a, another documented observation that we'll go into more depth in later volumes on is that in interviewing people on uh, Native Americans, tribal members in the Pacific Northwest over the last uh, 10 years, it's amazing how many of them refer to their French-speaking grandparents and and or mothers or fathers or great aunts and uncles or whatever. And you clearly through the 1970s and ever smaller numbers into the 80s, a significant uh, portion of the tribal members in the Pacific Northwest were still speaking French, obviously just of the older generation, but kind of a interesting phenomenon that, uh, again, doesn't make the local history books, but that, um, what, and again, it comes back to these families, like what Edmund said on the Potawatomi, these families have all played significant roles uh, in the modern transformation of the tribal confederations, of which they are part as participating in tribal leadership, not dominating, uh, but, you know, participating. And it's, it's definitely part of the modern Native American story all the way across uh, Dakotas, Montana, Washington, Oregon. So there's the northern borderlands have a particular history that warrants uh, a little more attention in this regard. And let's see, as far as Chapter 5, you know, other than where we wrapped up with uh, Colonel de Trobriand's uh, observations in the northern Dakotas, 
A couple of quick comments. Um, one in our in that chapter, La Haute Louisiane and the Far West, um, we cite uh, Tannis Thorne's um, very uh, significant statement uh, as a factor pulling Canadian and Creole traders up the Missouri River, where she says basically the insistence of the native leadership, the native leadership meant that these alliances were deliberate attempts by chiefly lineages to monopolize the flow of trade goods and thus secure political status by marrying daughters and sisters to the merchant traders. Um, and this this is a key point as far as just this, you know the agency of um, the Native American leadership was not uh, sitting there just reacting um, and they were had full agency as to what they were about in these intermarriages. They were not simply a matter of exploitation or uh, such matters that this was definitely part of the whole kin network phenomenon, which has been uh, a universal part of uh, trade from time immemorial as it's developed, and in particular between the, the white and Indian worlds in North America. There were two other families that, uh, in trying to make this point, that you know, a sampling of individual family stories that, you know, that would hopefully suffice to reestablish the imprint of Canadians in the history of what's now the American West. We also have the example of, of uh, Pierre-Louis de Lorimier and his Shawnee connection, intermarried with the tribe, ultimately starting his life out in Montreal at the uh, Mohawk Oka Reservation, where his father was based out of, a uh, loyalist family siding with the British after being uh, loyal um, loyalists under the French crown, ultimately moving into the Ohio country, uh, becoming the floating Indian agent, de facto Indian agent for the Shawnees as they moved across the Midwest, ultimately into Missouri, and he was is credited with the, being town founder of Cape Girardeau. And Lewis, uh, we cite in the book some of the interesting commentary of Meriwether Lewis when he came ashore as uh, in 1803 when they were getting ready to winter and finish recruiting and head up the Missouri River. Then there's the one other example that we go into in the story is the Roby Dew family, again coming out of Montreal. And within three generations, they were on the Pacific coast in Southern California, in this case, um, via both the Santa Fe and uh, Oregon trails. And they were became virtually notorious uh, traders along both, especially the Oregon Trail out there by Scott's Bluff and uh, very much uh, and very successfully taking full advantage of the Oregon Trail traffic. Very lucrative for them. Uh, Joseph Robita III is founder of St. Joe, Missouri, where one of my great-great-great-grandparents uh, headed out on the trail from. And uh, again, uh, just it's it's uh, surprising in hindsight that you you can have these uh, consider major actors in the development of the American West again within a three-generation span of uh, no more than 60, 70 years that take you all the way out. Yeah, and it's it's as you describe it in the book, it's the fur trade in part, which is of critical importance, not just in the Great Lakes region, but also in the so-called New Northwest, or what we would think of today as the Pacific Northwest. And I particularly enjoyed this part of the book, as it was a history that I knew relatively little about. 
So can you tell us about Métis identity and the Astorians and the history of the French-speaking Pacific Northwest a bit? Yes, uh, <laughs> gladly, again. Uh, and I've been, I'm trying to think. You know, when we, we talk about Métis identity, um, it, it's interesting because it's a doesn't fit into the standard identity uh, framework in the sense that um, they, at the time they would call themselves Bois Brule. Métis was a word in the French dictionary that was occasionally used in some fashion or another for you know people of mixed ancestry. But often they retained, and Tannis Thorne makes this point and, and numerous other authors, they retained a double identity and it was an inclusive double identity. It was not exclusive. They could, you know, the opportunity and opportunism, whatever. Um, they were loyal as often as not to uh, both their their heritages. Um, and it was only a kind of a relentless thing over multiple generations of forcing a binary, you know, get white, act white, or be an Indian and, and live with the consequences. Um, type of scenario. So it's uh, it's kind of a metamorphosis that, you know, it's hard to put your arms around. And that's that's what the, um, Sebastian Mallette brought to the table for uh, Michelle and I in his chapter nine, Politics Becoming. He did a superb job of uh, kind of explaining, at least on the Canadian side of the line, how this whole identity discussion and politics have evolved uh, in, through the 20th into the 21st century. And uh, the ongoing uh, debate up north of, you know, the capital M Métis of you know, the Canadian prairies and the Louis Riel and the Red River versus all the other Matisse across Canada and in the U.S. who were not part of that particular subset of the transcontinental Matisse story. And, and uh, Sebastian actually serves as expert witness in a number of cases trying to interpret this. Um, from his uh, employment there with Carleton University in, in Ottawa. He lives with his family over there on the other side of the Ottawa River in Gatineau, Quebec. But um, so in any case, getting a little you know, closer to the end of it on that, I, it's the whole thing with this, uh, the uh, rhizomatic uh, model. Uh, you can see that it, it's to show that this interconnection and inclusiveness as opposed to line drawing exclusion and uh, either or choices. So I, he does a great job of taking us through that. And then part of the challenge was is south of the border in Canada. Of course, you were there was a you could be both of the above. And the Matisse are now recognized since the 1982 Constitution as one of the three um, indigenous peoples, along with uh, the uh, first native. American Indian types, as well as the uh, they call First Peoples or First Nations and uh, the Eskimo. But down in the U.S., um, again, they're either Indian with some white ancestry or they're white with a little bit of Indian ancestry. We're still stuck in this binary until the more recent census has allowed at least people to say both of the above, but there is no real identity here. And we do a quick summary in that chapter nine of, of showing how from Michigan territory, these Matisse families and Canadians were able to actually obtain individual land grants through the multiple treaties with the tribes that um, involved the tribes surrendering land, but setting aside 
specific land grants for the Canadians and Matisse associated with the given tribe, Potawatomi, Ottawa, or Chippewa. Um, and then you see in uh, Iowa and Kansas, they would set aside a collective uh, kind of mini reservation called a half-breed tracks, and then ultimately, uh, following the Dawes Act, they had a more of a standard plan of forcing individual allotments onto the collective tribal um, approach to property on individual reservations. And interestingly enough, up in Montana, you have uh, resorting to the old uh, practice of uh, drawing lines after the fact, and the U.S. Army would periodically find themselves forced into having to hunt down the Matisse, um, which were labeled Canadian Indians, and deporting them back to Canada. Of course, these people were in Montana long before any Americans showed up, but uh, somehow if they spoke French and they said they had Cree ancestry, that meant they were on the other side of the border or belonged over there. And uh, but they most of them learned quickly to say, "Oh no, we're Chippewa," which meant that somehow they were belonged on the American side. Um, Martha Foster has a great book that came out about ten years ago that uh, tells this story. Phenomenal book. Um, so uh, let's see. I uh, there's a couple of. Uh, several things here. I, I haven't touched on chapter six, seven, or eight. I don't know if you want me to, of which of those points you want me to head into. Um, the, basically, the French Canadians were the first settlers uh, of the Pacific Northwest. People often dismiss it and say, oh, they were fur trappers, and everybody knows the fur trade went away, so they went away, right? Well, no. Uh, obviously, they, they, uh, had other lives uh, beyond the fur trade, and most of them settled down where they were at. Very few went back to, up to Canada. They had spent their lives south of what later became a border, and there was no reason for them to uh, relocate away from a lifetime of friends and in-laws with the local native tribes and the Métis community and, and the older Canadians that they'd come out with. Um, and so we, we had a, a sprinkling of settlements, the largest of which is at French Prairie. I was down giving a talk at the state park there at Champoy last uh, Saturday. And uh, they the names that are often listed there, I mean, there were many dozens of these families that were there before the Americans showed up. And they their rights were protected under both the Treaty of 1846, the preceding joint national um, provisional government terms, as well as the uh, when Congress and ultimately the Senate passed the uh, Donation Land Claim Act of uh, 1850, they were all, uh, all they had to do was declare citizenship and uh, then they could, in accordance with the terms for homesteading or establishing their claims, um, they, like any American settler, uh, could retain their property. Uh, so it was very, very thoroughly spelled out and generally effective here with only limited examples of, of claim jumping and intimidation problems. The, the main issue that would come up, especially in Washington Territory in the 1850s, was, okay, they got their land rights, but their property rights, but uh, 
we really want to give these guys voting rights. And uh, after much debate, the vote uh, in the first territorial assembly of Washington territory, they agreed uh, that they would give them the benefit of the doubt and they would have voting rights, inheritance and such. I think in, in Oregon state history, the Canadians are in, included. It's in Washington, Montana history. They're part of the story has been marginalized or almost totally omitted. And that's starting to change now, fortunately. We're getting them written back into the story here in Washington. Uh, and the Columbia Magazine, the quarterly of the Washington State, State Historical Society has really been a leader in that. Well, Robert, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before I let you go, I have one last question for you. Now that this book is um, is on the bookshelf, do you have any other projects on the horizon? What are you working on now? This book is basically an introduction to a series that I've been working on now for 20-odd years, um, and uh, which basically take the story on into the individual tribes as the families uh, over several generations uh, relocate uh, generally in a voluntary manner to uh, live amongst their uh, Native American kin. Not all, but many did, especially the males followed that route. Um, And uh, the second book, this book pretty much uh, tapers off in 1841 and uh, just on the eve of the first wagon trains coming into Oregon, um, the second volume, which is almost completed, probably about 85% there, picks up in 41, and uh, particularly uh, Commodore Wilkes' uh, arrival and uh, his, his he and his uh, crew and mapping the area uh, identify a fair number of the Canadians that were here and they depended upon to show them around. And then we move... Through the 1840s, the, set, the settlement processes, the provisional government, the Treaty of Partition, the Ar- U.S. Army doesn't even show up till 49. They're preoccupied down in California. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately the partition into multiple territories and followed by imposed treaties and the Indian Wars of 1856. There are three simultaneous Indian Wars in the Northwest, and that's where we end Volume 2. Uh, one in the Yakima Walla Walla Valley, one in the uh, South Puget Sound, and the other one, and by far the bloodiest, in the Rogue River country of uh, southwestern Oregon. So that's the next book, and then from there it's more focused on individual tribes and family stories around the Northwest, though I probably do need to drop back for one more round into the Midwest. Somewhere in that process, we've got multiple articles that have been authored, finished, or virtually finished. Uh, One just came out on the metisage of the Canadian families in the Lower Columbia and the generation and spread of the uh, Chinook Wawa, or Chinook jargon, which uh, retained a fair amount of French vocabulary, along with English, though uh, predominantly Native American. And there's another article here on a Cowlitz French-Canadian Matisse family, the Plomondon, with a co-author, Michael Hubbs, that uh, will be submitted shortly. Uh, it's a kind of a family story of a tribe that was not even recognized by the feds until the year 2000. Uh, the whole tells kind of the problem of a highly Matisse tribe trying to uh, 
negotiate. They refused relocation, hence they lost recognition and uh, the long struggle to maintain a tribal organization in the face of uh, stonewalling and such. And let's see, and tomorrow, the next book I begin will be an intriguing example of all the new work coming out of Canada, the book by uh, Peter Russell, Canada's Odyssey, a country based on incomplete conquests. Looking forward to that one in the book review here in Canada's History magazine. The uh, reviewer says, we are now left with a shared space that still requires governance based on mutual respect and understanding. Um, So that's uh, definitely uh, caught my interest. And Oh, one other thing I would uh, like to say is that um, um, I would definitely be like to forward to anybody that was uh, so inclined on suggesting specific uh, books and authors if they wanted to pursue uh, the subject matter, be it in the Midwest with books like I mentioned of Tannis Thorns, Gitlands, uh, Margaret Kimball Brown, and uh, the great Carl Eckberg. Or in the Pacific Northwest, probably the best book out on the subject from the Canadian side is uh, Jean Barman's French Canadians, Furs, and the and Indigenous Women in the Making of the Pacific Northwest. This book came out, uh, I think, about three years ago. Others out of UBC and British Columbia, Farming the Frontier by James Gibbs. Gibson, Making Wawa, Genesis of Chinook Jargon, George Lang, Richard Mackey's, and uh, Bruce uh, Watson's uh, contributions to the subject matter. In out of Quebec, it's just been a, a mother load of, uh, of recent publications as well, various works by Denis Vaujois, Jean Provencher, and Jacques Lacroissière, and more recently, Gaston Deschênes, teaming up with Denis Vaujois and Serge Bouchard. Without, let's uh, just rattling names off, and uh, without being too tedious, I'd be glad to clarify further on, on any of these, including some of the recent publications drastically revising the mythology on the founding of St. Louis, Missouri. So this, this whole subject matter is gaining traction very quickly um, south of the border. Canada, it's been, whether it's the Métis of the Plains and all the books by um, the, uh, Jennifer Brown and Gerhard Eng and Heather Devine and Carolyn Produshny and others. Um, the U.S., especially in the Midwest, has really seized the subject by the horns and the level of scholarship has uh, moved forward dramatically in the last 15 years. So um, there are lots of... Uh, information available in a very well digested form now suddenly um well i'm glad that the subject is getting the coverage that it deserves and i look forward to reading uh the next volumes in this series as well robert foxcurran is an independent historian and is co-author along with michelle bouchard and sebastian mallet of songs upon the rivers the buried history of the french-speaking canadians and metis from the great lakes and the mississippi across to the pacific which was published in 2016 by baraka books robert thank you so much for joining us today yes and uh thanks for uh the interest and the patience the pleasure was all mine thanks again 